have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, second gospel, excuse me, third gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, we're going to look at this text uh, that's looking at a supper, a last meal that Jesus took that the Jewish people had taken for hundreds of years at this point. If you go all the way back to the book of Exodus, we're told that there was a people who were an enslaved people. Uh, they came from the lineage of Abraham and a guy named Joseph, and they had a great history and story of God's provision and faithfulness to them. Uh, but in that present moment in the book of Exodus, most of them had forgotten and only knew of the stories of God, but they had never experienced a story of God. Some of you, you have that kind of faith. It's secondhand faith. You know the stories of the faith, but you've yet to experience it in a firsthand way. Secondhand faith is not a saving faith. Secondhand faith will not in eternity, when you stand before God in judgment, get you through. You see, you and I have to give an account not for what grandma and those that came before us said about God, but we have to speak for ourselves about who God is to us. Jesus looks to Peter and says, not to the crowd, but who do you say that I am? And for you and I, the greatest question we will ever answer, not by the family we were born into or the dysfunctions or lack thereof that we have gone through, is who is Jesus to us at an individual and personal level? Level. Who is Jesus to you? So the people had in Exodus never heard of this God or had only heard of this God. They cried out to him and God heard their cry and he found a murderer on the backwoods of nowhere that had been hiding out for 40 years running from his past and what had happened in Egypt and he sends them back to the point of trauma uh, because he was uniquely going to do something new. God never brings you back to your trauma so that he can bring you through the failure of it to demonize and discourage you. But he'll often bring you back to the pain points in your life because he's got a new story of redemption that he wants to tell from your rock bottom up. See, this was a, a mission that God was sending Moses on that was for a nation, but Moses needed the mission. Because Moses needed to go back to where everything turned upside down. Moses needed to go back to where everything was broken and he had run away from it. So he shows back up in Egypt 40 years later. And he tells Pharaoh to let God's people go. Pharaoh says no. A series of plagues break out. And after all of those plagues, God says, Tonight is going to be the night where I'm going to break you free from Pharaoh forever. And they sat down for a meal where they rubbed the blood of a lamb on their doorpost. And they had a Passover feast. All of this was a foreshadowing to this night where Jesus in Luke chapter 22 would share a last supper and meal. Pointing to the fact that that first meal in Exodus was pointing to this day in history when he would sit with his disciples and one last time symbolically break the bread and pass the cup before he would go and become sin on our behalf so that we could become righteousness that is not derived from ourself because self-righteous ain't God-righteous. And you and I have been made to walk in the righteousness of God. And so Jesus broke the bread, he passed the cup, and then he went and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He died the death we deserve to die. He rose in victory over that death, and now he has the right to extend life and salvation to the whosoevers in the room, which is good news because y'all are a bunch of whosoevers. If I ever saw some whosoevers up in this room. As he took that last supper meal in Luke chapter 22, there is a... Uh, process that he walked through that pops up, some would say, 
in a peculiar way, I would say in an intentional way in other parts of your Bible. So across the Passover meal, we see that God took the bread, he blessed the bread, he broke the bread, and then he gave it. We would read through that because it's all in Luke twenty-two nineteen quickly. Uh, but we see this pop up in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus comes to the disciples and says, well, let's feed them. And the disciples said, we have nothing. And he says, go and find what you have. They bring what they have, and the text says he took the fish and the loaves. He blessed the fish and the loaves. He broke the fish and the loaves, and then they were given, and everyone had enough. You flip over a couple chapters later, because you might be thinking that's just an anomaly and a preacher that's bored trying to find things in the Bible that may not be a big deal, and you get to the feeding of the 4,000. In that moment, they take the fish and the bread. They give it to Jesus. He takes it. He blesses it. He breaks it. He gives it. It goes out. Then you might think, okay, well, we got it there, there in the Passover, but then you go forward to this road to Emmaus Mill. Jesus, after being raised, is walking on a road with likely a husband and wife. Many believe it to be Cleopas and his wife back uh, uh, to Emmaus from uh, Jerusalem where they had been trying to process everything. Jesus begins to talk to them. They do not see. They do not know who he is. They show up to their house. They've had no time to prep a meal, so what do they do? They grab common bread, bread that would last a few days, bread that they could live on, the daily food. They put it on the table. They ask Jesus to come in and eat with them. What does Jesus do? Well, they take the bread that was put on the table, and it says that he then took the bread, he blessed the bread, and he broke it. And when he broke it, they realized who he was, and then he was gone. But the bread was given. You go forward, and Peter, who said he would never leave God, remember that guy, overpromises and underdelivers Peter, more like you and me than we want to be. See, everybody wants to be the good parts of the people in the Bible, but what you don't understand is most of us are like the bad parts of the people in the Bible, and the whole point of the Bible's stories are to point to a God who is good in spite of an imperfect and broken people who remain constantly not so good. Everybody talks about being a man after God's own heart. Well, that guy was an adulterer, was a murderer. <laughs> was a mess, and he needed the intervention of God on his behalf. Are you tracking with me? So, like, everybody wants the upside, but no one wants to admit that if you're a human being, you have a downside, and your downside is likely larger than you want to allow everyone else to see in the room around you. Go ahead and look at your neighbor and let them know, hey, you got an upside, but neighbor, you got a downside too. Go ahead, let them know. you got a downside. There's a downside to you. There's an upside. But, man, there, there's a downside to you. So Jesus meets the disciples on the beach and he cooks breakfast. What does he do? He takes the breakfast, he blesses the breakfast, he breaks the breakfast and it's given to the disciples to eat. We see this consistently and Jesus then in Luke chapter 22 verse 19 says, if I got that right, 22, 19, did I hold on to that? Yes, I nailed it. Okay, and he took the bread, and when he had given it, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you, and this is this, you ready? Do this in, repeatedly. It's frequent. Why is it frequent? Because every day, you can either go to the table of the Lord or the table of the world, and you're going to eat from somebody's table. And for a lot of us, we are content with a claim to a salvation that has allowed us a seat at a table that we don't sit at daily. I'll show up on Sunday and I'll sit at his table, but I want nothing to do with depending on God to give me mere daily bread each day. So why does Jesus teach perhaps the most common prayer to say 
give us this day our because we are to frequent his table. Because it's in the frequenting of his table that we live the Christian life. What is the Christian life? And I want to be very clear. I do not want to take communion and remove it from being about a remembrance of the sacrifice of the good news of the gospel to where it becomes something that is about us because it's at the table where we see Jesus clearly. But I want you to understand that the Christian life that we've been called to live, I believe, is modeled in the how-to at the table. What, is, what happens at the table? We come to the table however we are. God, God doesn't reject common bread. He doesn't despise a few fish and a few loaves. He, doesn't, uh, he still uses mustard seeds. So you bring whatever you got. Some of you are like, I just got a little bit of faith left. Then bring it to his table. I only got a few fish and a few loaves. Then bring it to his table. We just got common bread. It's just a Monday. Then bring it to his table table. He doesn't reject what you bring. He doesn't discourage or dismiss you because your bringing is not elaborate. You can come broken and in your mind you may think that you're whole and you don't need him and you can still come in your arrogance and pride anyway. Just come to his table. You see, he takes what we bring. And then what does he do? He lifts it up in order for it to be blessed. He blesses it. He takes it and he blesses it. He takes it and he blesses it. And then he does something peculiar and weird. But this is the Christian way. Daily we come to his table. We bring what we have. He takes where we're at, whatever it is, whatever it looks like. He lifts it up so that that day and that life and that living can be blessed in a way that can echo in eternity to the glory of God, which is the point of every day that we would live and surrender to God by the power of the Spirit of God that is at work in us so that we could then take on whatever is in the world around us in a way that would represent the God that we represent in our living in the kingdom that we have been identified as citizens of by the mark of the spirit who is now at work in and through us. We bring our lives. He takes them. He lifts it up. He blesses it. And then he does this. You ready? He breaks it, which is counterintuitive to a lot of our theology. The majority of us feel like if we come to God, he takes it, he blesses it, it's fixed, it's done, it's easy, it's simple, it's not hard, it's not difficult, there's no dark night of the soul, there's no tribulation or trouble, there's no uh, struggle that comes after that. We're always full, we're never lonely, we're always whole, we're never having to walk with the Lord in the incomplete areas of our life that we were carrying with something that wasn't good, but it at least filled the space. It at least kept us company. See, sometimes God breaks and allows the space to be something that sits there, allows the need to be something that's there and recognized even if it's not filled immediately. You ever notice when you read the narrative in Genesis, it says that God recognized that it was not good for the man to be alone? And in the midst of that, you then get this task. So God told Adam to go and name all of the creatures of earth. God knows there's a need in Adam's life, yet he doesn't immediately feel the need that's in Adam's life. Instead, he gives him a task of naming animals. What a, a peculiar uh, detour to recognize a need and to seemingly, on the surface, be doing nothing about it. Why would God not immediately bless it and boom, there's Eve. Boom, no more loneliness. Boom. 
Perhaps it's so that you can get to a place where you realize that if you have nothing but communion with God, then you have everything that you'll ever need. So that when God then blesses you with more than just his communion, but the communion of others around you and the blessings of his table, you don't begin to think that the table is about those blessings and the other people around it. Sometimes the best gift God can give you is loneliness. I'm not talking isolation and discouragement. I'm talking a space where you cannot be distracted with anything but the need for him. That's all I got. I need you. I, I, I can't scratch the itch of loneliness with just going into a, a crowd. I can't scratch the itch of loneliness with another TV show or another hobby. I just need you. Oh, it's a beautiful breaking whenever God allows this to happen in your life. See, in my mind, if, if God were to work the way that I think he should work, then I come to God. He takes what I come with. He blesses it. It's fixed. But I get that from Romans 8:28. It says in Romans 8:28, "And all things God works for the good of those who or works all things together for good for those who are called according to his." And so in my mind, I come to God with all the things that have been broken by the world. God then takes those broken things from the world, and then ultimately everything is fixed. You resolve it in 30 minutes like a Friday night Danny Tanner uh, Full House TV show. It starts with a problem. It ends with a conclusion. Danny speaks in a soft voice as if it's the spirit speaking to the child and everything is fixed and fine. My thinking goes down the line of this. The world is broken. Living in the world, we end up broken. God takes the broken things of the world and he makes good out of the brokenness. Romans 8, 28. But that will not involve any further breaking. In my mind, he blesses it and it's miraculously fixed. That's the rhythm that I think we should be living by, but that's not the rhythm of the Lord's table. Instead, he takes what's at the table, he blesses it, and then he breaks it. He breaks it. Many of us have come broken to the Lord, but have you ever been broken by the Lord? Because there's a big difference between the breaking of our Lord and the breaking of of the world. I don't like to be broken by the Lord. I'm resistant to it. There's two big reasons that I thought about this week as I thought about this idea of being broken by the Lord. The first is the fact that for the majority of my life, I've been moderately to highly successful at everything I've ever done, which is a very big deception. I've never missed a meal, obviously. Some of you are beginning to tell. People kept telling me my metabolism would catch up with me. I'm now beginning to realize you cannot eat 37 Snickers and have a six-pack at 39 a day just to be clear that's not a week that's not a month that's a day some of you are doubting me I could prove it my wife would not like it I would get diabetes I would die it's not a good thing but, but moderately my life is going well my, my mom and dad still love each other they love the Lord uh, my dad still inappropriately will like smack my mom on the butt in front of me and at 39 it's still weird it's even more weird I'm like is your heart healthy enough for that parents is awkward. That's funnier than you want to admit in church. They love the Lord. They serve the Lord. Dad opened the Bible, uh, taught me the Bible. He raised me with a Bible in one hand and a belt in the other, and I came out all right. Uh, at seventh grade, at five foot seven and 112 pounds, I decided I was going to be a collegiate basketball player. 
I became a collegiate basketball player at 6'2", 133 pounds. I gained 15 pounds. I, I wanted to start. I was going to be a starter. I started. I became a starter. Uh, I wanted to date the most godly, ungodly, worldly girl in the world that would make my mom crazy. I did. I did. I wanted to uh, drive a certain car with a system and a sound system in it. I wanted to go and have these kinds of experiences. I wanted to work around the NBA the rest of my life. I had an avenue to go do it. So here, here's the problem. Sometimes many of you have so much success that it's hard for you to recognize an absolute need and dependency for God. So you don't think that God needs to break anything because you've got a lot of good things going. So you bring your good things and you don't want God to touch those. You just want him to fix the broken ones that continue to how, allow your soul at night to know that something's not right, even though you have a lot of stuff to distract yourself with. See, see, this is the struggle with being broken by the Lord. The table is where we are transformed to start a new life. And many come only wanting God to be an addition to an already good life. Many come already with a good life and we just want Jesus to be the add-on, the rabbit's foot, the footnote, the blesser of what we've already brought, but not the giver of what we don't have. We don't need from God. We just want God to bless what we already have and leave us alone. This is why it's so difficult for the highly successful and well-off to come to Jesus. This is why Jesus said after he talked to the rich young ruler that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Why? Because for many of us, we want Jesus to take the bad and not the good. You see, Jesus takes us at the table not because of our merits or success, but because of his grace. He blesses us at the table, not because we are worthy, but because he is gracious to us. And then he breaks us at the table. And that's the objection of the successful. Many successful people will think, my efforts before coming to you should count. Why can't they carry over? I believe the table of the Lord teaches us that what we were is of no use to God until it is given to God. No matter how talented and no matter how heralded by the world, what you are until you're in the hands of God is of no use to God. God does not use what is not surrendered into his hands. You see, until God takes, blesses, and lifts it up so that it can be broken, it will not be used in a great way for the Lord. Adrian Rogers, a famous pastor, said, God never really uses anything until he first breaks it. So how many of you want to be used by God? I understand your caution. Two hands went up and everybody else thought, is that a responsive question? Or are you? How many of you want to be used by God? 60%, that's some honesty up in the church, right? He who God will use greatly, or she who God will use greatly, he will first break them deeply. That seems mean. That seems ill-hearted. Well, let me explain. Many of us, we rebu rebuke the breaking of God because we're pretty successful. Number two, many of us also don't want to be broken because we believe we're already healed. Let me, let me explain something. In our vocabulary, I am concerned that many of you believe that functioning has become the same thing as healed. Just because you're functioning does not mean you're healed. Have any of you have ever heard of a functioning alcoholic? They're not healed. 
They're just functioning with it. A functioning drug addict. They're not healed. They're just functioning with it. But my friend, you're not, you're not functioning, are you? You've been healed, haven't you? God reached in and changed you, didn't he? You're not the same. And this is my point. This is my point, guys. There's a big difference between being functional and having been healed. And many of you are content with it works. I get by. We're getting through. And that's not what you get at my father's table. When I was younger, I had a friend who broke his arm. They casted it for eight weeks. After eight weeks, they took the cast off to see if it was, quote-unquote, healed. When they looked at the break, they realized that while it was reconnected together and his arm was functioning, it had healed wrongly, which means it was not optimal. It was not fully restored. So they had to make a decision as a medical team. Do we allow his arm to function, though it's not healed in a way that's stronger than it was before the breaking? It will always be less than. Or do we go in and surgically, with a medical team, intentionally break the arm so that it can heal appropriately and be stronger than it ever was before? They ended up deciding to take him back in and intentionally breaking it this time. You see, that's the difference between the breaking of God and the breaking of the world. The world is always trying to break you, and you walk into a lot of accidental breaking that happens in the world. But God's breaking is never an accident. God's breaking is a recognition that there are things that have been built onto the structure that are not founded in the foundation of God. They're not things that are founded in the word of God. And because they're not in the word of God and in the will of God and in the way of God, God graciously decides to chop them off. And for a lot of you, you have relationships that weren't built on the rock. So God wrecked those relationships with storms of the world. It was an intentional breaking because those relationships could never be God-honoring. So as a result, and he decided to break down the structure and rebuild on the rock or break down the structure and completely start over all together. You're mad at God because he took away your toys. He took away your distractions. He took away the things that you were putting in his place to get his praise and to get his worship. But what he was actually doing was designing a path for you to be whole, designing a path for you to be healed. It wasn't incidental. He was doing surgery. He was overseeing the whole process. It broke, but it was being realigned in a way that needed to be realigned so that it could be healed and stronger than it had ever been before. And I'm trying to tell some of you that are running from the breaking of God because you're functioning, that you're not healed, and that God's desire is that you would be healed. But that requires you allowing him to do surgical breaking in your life so that he can remove things that are not founded on his rock that may be good things to you, but they're not God things to him, which means they're not God's best in your life. God desires to give you a life, according to John chapter 10, that is abundant. That is not wealth and prosperity, and do not let the prosperity gospel people jack that from you to where you run from it. But the prosperity that God, God promises and God brings into our life is that we get him. We get him. Don't you understand? That's the abundant life. It's life with him, quorum Deo, life in the face of God, in the fellowship with God, enjoying God, treasuring God, praising God, serving God, walking with God, empowered by God, filled with the Spirit of God. That's the Christian abundant life. Forget the money. Forget the house. Forget a boat. God doesn't need boats. He walks on water. Like, like just, you get him. 
You get him. If you got him, you don't need a boat. If you got him, you don't have to have a house. If you got him, you don't need a security fund in your bank account. If you got him, you have everything. You have everything. But if you don't have him, you may have a lot of trappings of this world. But in the end, you'll have nothing. So God breaks. But not so that he can do what the world does, destroy and dismiss, but so that he can heal. God breaks so that he can heal. Many of us avoid the Lord's breaking in our life because our life is functioning. But functioning is not the life that God promised. And I want nothing short of every bit of the life that he promised. So I come to, I come to his table on a Monday with common bread, with brokenness and bitterness and pain, with victories and distractions and hobbies that have taken my interest and my love and my affection away from God and I laid them on the table and I plead with him to take them, to bless them, and to break them. Take them, bless them, and break them. See, there's a good in God's breaking. It's surgical. When God breaks, things get clear. There's a clarity that comes with God's breaking. Psalm 51 verse 17 says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Why does God love a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart? Because <laughs> I frequently think, very quickly from this moment, that I do not need Jesus as desperately as I would profess that I needed him in this moment. Prone to wonder, Lord, I fear it. Prone to leave the God I love. So what, what keeps me near? There's a caring of a brokenness that reminds me that apart from him, I have nothing. So that I never let the something I have begin to make me think that it can be a replacement for the God I need. What keeps us near God? Humility. Humility. I'm not all that in a bag of chips, and God's not trying to make you independent from him in some kind of way while you're blessed with carrying something that makes you not need God or have to trust in God or walk with God. So what does God love? He loves it when we get to this point where there's a brokenness, a contrition in our hearts that goes, man, I need you every minute and every hour, Lord. I need you. 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 He's like, man, that, that's it. Why? Because when you get to that place, there's a clarity that comes because you no longer come to the table for what's on it, but you come to the table for who's at the head of it. I want God. I want communion with Jesus. No matter what's on the table, I want him. The point is him. I mean, there's a beauty in the breaking. Now, I'll, I'll just tell you, I, I, when it comes to being a pastor in America, I had the American dream. Multiple campuses, half a million dollars a year going to missions, mission teams going all over the world, had a church planning organization that came and offered us a quarter of a million dollars annually to train, send, and plant churches in California. I was on the uh, Fox News every Monday recapping my sermon, not talking about like uh, God and country, but actually just talking about the kingdom of God and how God's kingdom is not the American kingdom and there's a difference between the two and they just, let, they just wanted me to come and keep doing it. It was amazing. Uh, sat and had lunch with senators and governors and officials had a dude from corn come to my church. That was cool. I mean, just every, everything you could want was happening. And uh, 
in it, God became the accessory and the things on the table became the treasure. So God allowed me to be broken. He allowed me to be broken because I didn't need what was on the table. I needed him. And what happened was clarity. I don't pastor the way that I used to pastor. Why? Because I've been broken deeply. I I run from spotlights. In fact, I hope that we minister for the next 30 years in a highly effective way in complete obscurity from the news. I don't don't need them to know how many meals we're going to feed. I don't need them to know what we're doing. I don't don't want them to, I I don't care if the the rest of Greenville County who's not encountering our people has any clue. I don't want to be known for my preaching. I don't want to be known by a tweet from a sermon that I preached. I I don't want to be known by sermon views. I could care less. I don't want any of that. I want to love my Lord well. I want to treasure him deeply. As a result of that, I want to love my neighbor greatly. That starts with my wife. That starts with my kids. That starts with my literal next door neighbors that I want to serve and love and know the kingdom of God well. And I can't be a good neighbor, i found, personally, when I'm trying to be a really good celebrity Christian, which is not a thing. Do, do you know the gift of clarity that comes with the breaking of the Lord? There's a clarity. Number two, there's a reception that comes when he breaks. In order for bread to absorb, it has to be broken. When the loaf is there, it's got a crust that rejects the oil. It rejects absorbing anything. So what does Jesus do? Well, he blesses it and he breaks it. Why? So that it can now absorb what it couldn't absorb before. Some of you think it's about you being empty. No, no, it's about God emptying you of things that don't matter so that he can fill you with a kingdom that's eternal. My favorite meal starters, you go to the sizzler of Italian restaurants, the Olive Garden. They bring out that sliced bread. They pour that like cheap olive oil on a plate because I've been to a fancy Italian place that my parents paid for one time and I know there's a difference now. That's what happens when you get old and bougie. You start like judging the merit of olive oils. That's, that's a little great. You can find that at Costco. <laughs> Start eating your bread with your pinky out. Don't even know why it's happening. It's just. They pour that olive oil on the plate. And then you put a little salt on that plate. A little pepper. Maybe you got a little extra something. And then you take that bread that's been broken. And what does it do? Oh, in a glorious moment, the heavens begin to open. And the Lord's like, I am. I want you to know of my goodness and my blessing. You take a bite of it and the oil begins to drip down your lips and your wife looks at you like you're weird, and I'm like, I'm anointed. <laughs> I've been filled. You know, God, God breaks the bread. He breaks it because if it's not broken, it cannot receive. And after it receives, what happens? It's filled. God's breaking is so that there will be a filling. Because at the end of this process, God's intent would be that we would be taken into his hands, lifted up in his mercy, power, and grace broken in his surgical eye, his caring eye that would oversee the process of us becoming more and more like Jesus so that in the process of us becoming more and more like Jesus, we could be given as a gift to the world, a light in darkness, salt to the earth. See, you can't be given if you've not been filled and you can't be filled if you've not been broken. So God's goodness to you is he invites you to his table, however you are and whatever condition you're in, so that he can take whatever you bring, lift it up, break it, fill it, so that ultimately it can be given.
May it be so in our lives. Our prayer team's gonna be here. We'd love to pray for you, with you. If you're running from the breaking of the Lord, we would invite you to surrender. Bend your knee. Come down front and cry out. Cry out to him. If you don't know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, we have a prayer team here that's ready to pray with you and talk with you about what it means to give your life and surrender to him. Whatever obedience and response looks like for you, we invite you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and then we'll end with communion.